Story seven of the House with the Mezzanine and Other Stories by Anton Chekhov. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story seven My Life, the Story of a Provincial, Parts nineteen and twenty. Part nineteen. At last there came a letter from Masha. My dear kind M. A., she wrote, my brave sweet angel, as the old painter calls you, good-bye. I am going to America with my father for the exhibition. In a few days I shall be on the ocean, so far from Dubechnia. It is awful to think of. It is vast and open, like the sky, and I long for it, and freedom. I rejoice and dance about, and you see how incoherent my letter is. My dear Misseo, give me my freedom. Quick, tear the thread which still holds and binds us. My meeting and knowing you was a ray from heaven which brightened my existence. But you know, my becoming your wife was a mistake, and the knowledge of the mistake weighs me down, and I implore you on my knees, my dear, generous friend, quick, quick, before I go over the sea, wire that you will agree to correct our mutual mistake, remove then the only burden on my wings, and my father, who will be responsible for the whole business, has promised me not to overwhelm you with formalities. So then, I am free of the whole world. Yes. Be happy. God bless you. Forgive my wickedness. I am alive and well. I am squandering money on all sorts of follies, and every minute I thank God that such a wicked woman as I am has no children. I am singing, and I am a success, but it is not a passing whim. No, it is my haven, my convent cell, where I go for rest. King David had a ring with an inscription, Everything Passes. When one is sad, these words make one cheerful, and when one is cheerful, they make one sad. And I have got a ring with the words written in Hebrew, and this talisman will keep me from losing my heart and head. Or does one need nothing but consciousness of freedom? Because when one is free, one wants nothing, nothing, nothing. Snap the thread, then. I embrace you and your sister warmly. Forgive and forget your M. My sister had one room. Radish, who had been ill and was recovering, was in the other. Just as I received this letter, my sister went into the painter's room and sat by his side, and began to read to him. She read Ostrovsky, or Gogol, to him every day, and he used to listen, staring straight in front of him, never laughing, shaking his head, and every now and then muttering to himself, Anything may happen, anything may happen. If there was anything ugly in what she read, he would say vehemently, pointing to the book, There it is, lies, that's what lies do. Stories used to attract him by their contents as well as by their moral, and their skillfully complicated plot, and he used to marvel at him, though he never called him by his name. How well he has managed it! Now my sister read a page quickly and then stopped, because her breath failed her. Radish held her hand, and moving his dry lips he said in a hoarse, hardly audible voice, the soul of the righteous is white and smooth as chalk, and the soul of the sinner is as a pumice-stone. 
the soul of the righteous is clear oil and the soul of the sinner is coal tar we must work and sorrow and pity he went on and if a man does not work and sorrow he will not enter the kingdom of heaven woe woe to the well-fed woe to the strong woe to the rich woe to the usurers they will not see the kingdom of heaven grubs eat grass rust eats iron and lies devour the soul said my sister laughing i read the letter once more at that moment the soldier came into the kitchen who had brought in twice a week without saying from whom tea french bread and pigeons all smelling of scent i had no work and used to sit at home for days together and probably the person who sent us the bread knew that we were in want i heard my sister talking to the soldier and laughing merrily then she lay down and ate some bread and said to me when you wanted to get away from the office and become a house painter anuita blagovo and i knew from the very beginning that you were right but we were afraid to say so tell me what power is it that keeps us from saying what we feel there's anuita blagovo she loves you adores you and she knows that you are right she loves me too like a sister and she knows that i am right and in her heart she envies me but some power prevents her coming to see us she avoids us she is afraid my sister folded her hands across her bosom and said rapturously if you only knew how she loves you she confessed it to me and to no one else very hesitatingly in the dark she used to take me out into the garden into the dark and began to tell me in a whisper how dear you were to her you will see that she will never marry because she loves you are you sorry for her yes it was she sent the bread she is funny why should she hide herself i used to be silly and stupid but i left all that and i am not afraid of any one and i think and say aloud what i like and i am happy when i lived at home i had no notion of happiness and now i would not change places with a queen dr blagovo came he had got his diploma and was now living in the town at his father's taking a rest after which he said he would go back to petersburg he wanted to devote himself to vaccination against typhus and i believe cholera he wanted to go abroad to increase his knowledge and then to become a university professor he had already left the army and wore serge clothes with well-cut coats wide trousers and expensive ties my sister was enraptured with his pins and studs and his red silk handkerchief which out of swagger he wore in his outside breast pocket once when we had nothing to do she and i fell to counting up his suits and came to the conclusion that he must have at least ten it was clear that he still loved my sister but never once even in joke did he talk of taking her to petersburg or abroad with him and i could not imagine what would happen to her if she lived or what was to become of her child but she was happy in her dreams and would not think seriously of the future she said he could go wherever he liked and even cast her aside if only he were happy himself and what had been was enough for her 
Usually, when he came to see us, he would sound her very carefully, and ask her to drink some milk with some medicine in it. He did so now. He sounded her and made her drink a glass of milk, and the room began to smell of creosote. "'That's a good girl,' he said, taking the glass from her. "'You must not talk much, and you have been chattering like a magpie lately. Please be quiet.' She began to laugh, and he came into Radish's room, where I was sitting, and tapped me affectionately on the shoulder. "'Well, old man, how are you?' he asked, bending over the patient. "'Sir,' said Radish, only just moving his lips, "'Sir, I make so bold. We are all in the hands of God, and we must all die. Let me tell you the truth, sir. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven.' And suddenly I lost consciousness, and was caught up into a dream. It was winter, at night, and I was standing in the yard of the slaughter-house, with Prokofi at my side, smelling of pepper-brandy. I pulled myself together and rubbed my eyes, and then I seemed to be going to the governor's for an explanation. Nothing of the kind ever happened to me before or after, and I can only explain these strange dreams, like memories, by ascribing them to overstrain of the nerves. I lived again through the scene in the slaughter-house and the conversation with the governor, and at the same time I was conscious of its unreality. When I came to myself, I saw that I was not at home, but standing with the doctor by a lamp in the street. "'It is sad, sad,' he was saying, with tears running down his cheeks. "'She is happy and always laughing and full of hope. But, poor darling, her condition is hopeless. Old Radish hates me and keeps trying to make me understand that I have wronged her. In his way he is right.' but I have my point of view, too, and I do not repent of what happened. It is necessary to love. We must all love. That's true, isn't it? Without love there would be no life, and a man who avoids and fears love is not free. We gradually passed to other subjects. He began to speak of science and his dissertation, which had been very well received in Petersburg. He spoke enthusiastically, and thought no more of my sister, or of his going, or of myself. Life was carrying him away. She has America and a ring, with an inscription, I thought, and he has his medical degree and his scientific career, and my sister and I are left with the past. When we parted, I stood beneath the lamp and read my letter again and I remembered vividly how she came to me at the mill that spring morning, and lay down and covered herself with my fur coat, pretending to be just a peasant woman. And another time, also in the early morning, when we pulled the bow-net out of the water, and the willows on the bank showered great drops of water on us, and we laughed. All was dark in our house in Great Gentry Street. I climbed the fence, and as I used to do in old days, I went into the kitchen by the back door to get a little lamp. There was nobody in the kitchen. On the stove the samovar was singing merrily, all ready for my father. Who pours out my father's tea now? I thought. I took the lamp and went on to the shed and made a bed of old newspapers and lay down. The nails in the wall looked ominous as before, and their shadows flickered. It was cold. 
I thought I saw my sister coming in with my supper, but I remembered at once that she was ill at radishes, and it seemed strange to me that I should have climbed the fence and be lying in the cold shed. My mind was blurred and filled with fantastic imaginations. A bell rang, sounds familiar from childhood. First the wire rustled along the wall, and then there was a short melancholy tinkle in the kitchen. It was my father returning from the club. I got up and went into the kitchen. Aksinya, the cook, clapped her hands when she saw me and began to cry. "'Oh, my dear,' she said in a whisper, "'oh, my dear, my God!' And in her agitation she began to pluck at her apron. On the window-sill were two large bottles of berries soaking in vodka. I poured out a cup and gulped it down, for I was very thirsty. Aksinya had just scrubbed the table and the chairs, and the kitchen had the good smell which kitchens always have when the cook is clean and tidy. This smell and the trilling of the cricket used to entice us into the kitchen when we were children, and there we used to be told fairy tales, and we played at kings and queens. "'And where is Cleopatra?' asked Aksinya hurriedly, breathlessly. "'And where is your hat, sir? And they say your wife has gone to Petersburg.' She had been with us in my mother's time, and used to bathe Cleopatra and me in a tub, and we were still children to her, and it was her duty to correct us. In a quarter of an hour or so she laid bare all her thoughts, which she had been storing up in her quiet kitchen all the time I had been away. She said the doctor ought to be made to marry Cleopatra. We would only have to frighten him a bit and make him send in a nicely written application, and then the archbishop would dissolve his first marriage, and it would be a good thing to sell Dubechnia without saying anything to my wife, and to bank the money in my own name. And if my sister and I went on our knees to our father, and asked him nicely, then perhaps he would forgive us, and we ought to pray to the Holy Mother to intercede for us. "'Now, sir, go and talk to him,' she said, when we heard my father's cough. "'Go, speak to him, and beg his pardon. He won't bite your head off. I went in. My father was sitting at his desk, working on the plan of a bungalow with Gothic windows and a stumpy tower like the lookout of a fire-station, an immensely stiff and inartistic design. As I entered the study, I stood so that I could not help seeing the plan. I did not know why I had come to my father, but I remember that when I saw his thin face, red neck, and his shadow on the wall, I wanted to throw my arms round him, and as Aksinya had bid me, to beg his pardon humbly. But the sight of the bungalow, with the Gothic windows and the stumpy tower, stopped me. "'Good evening,' I said. He glanced at me, and at once cast his eyes down on his plan. "'What do you want?' he asked after a while. "'I came to tell you that my sister is very ill. She is dying,' I said dully. Well, my father sighed, took off his spectacles, and laid them on the table. As you have sown, so you must reap. 
I want you to remember how you came to me two years ago, and on this very spot I asked you to give up your delusions, and I reminded you of your honour, your duty, your obligations to your ancestors, whose traditions must be kept sacred. Did you listen to me? You spurned my advice and clung to your wicked opinions. Furthermore, you dragged your sister into your abominable delusions, and brought about her downfall and her shame. Now you are both suffering for it. As you have sown, so you must reap. He paced up and down the study as he spoke. Probably he thought that I had come to him to admit that I was wrong, and probably he was waiting for me to ask his help for my sister and myself. I was cold, but I shook as though I were in a fever, and I spoke with difficulty in a hoarse voice. "'And I must ask you to remember,' I said, "'that on this very spot I implored you to try to understand me, to reflect, and to think what we were living for, and to what end, and your answer was to talk about my ancestors and my grandfather who wrote verses.' Now you are told that your only daughter is in a hopeless condition, and you talk of ancestors and traditions. And you can maintain such frivolity when death is near, and you have only five or ten years left to live. "'Why did you come here?' asked my father sternly, evidently affronted at my approaching him with frivolity. "'I don't know. I love you. I am more sorry than I can say that we are so far apart. That is why I came. I still love you, but my sister has finally broken with you. She does not forgive you and will never forgive you. Your very name fills her with hatred of her past life. And who is to blame? cried my father. You, you scoundrel. Yes, say that I am to blame, I said. I admit that I am to blame, for many things. But why is your life, which you have tried to force on us, so tedious and frigid and ungracious? Why are there no people in any of the houses you have built during the last thirty years from whom I could learn how to live and how to avoid such suffering? These houses of yours are infernal dungeons in which mothers and daughters are persecuted, children are tortured. My poor mother, my unhappy sister! One needs to drug oneself with vodka, cards, scandal, cringe, play the hypocrite, and go on year after year designing rotten houses, not to see the horror that lurks in them. Our town has been in existence for hundreds of years, and during the whole of that time it has not given the country one useful man, not one. You have strangled in embryo everything that was alive and joyous. A town of shopkeepers, publicans, clerks, and hypocrites, an aimless, futile town, and not a soul would be the worse if it were suddenly raised to the ground. "'I don't want to hear you, you scoundrel,' said my father, taking a ruler from his desk. "'You are drunk. You dare come into your father's presence in such a state?' I tell you for the last time, and you can tell this to your strumpet of a sister, that you will get nothing from me. I have torn my disobedient children out of my heart, and if they suffer through their disobedience and obstinacy, I have no pity for them. You may go back where you came from. God has been pleased to punish me through you. 
I will humbly bear my punishment, and like Job, I find consolation in suffering and unceasing toil. You shall not cross my threshold until you have mended your ways. I am a just man, and everything I say is practical good sense, and if you had any regard for yourself, you would remember what I have said and what I am saying now. I threw up my hands and went out. I do not remember what happened that night or next day. They say that I went staggering through the street without a hat, singing aloud, with crowds of little boys shouting after me, Little Prophet, Little Prophet. End of Part 19 Part 20 If I wanted to order a ring, I would have it inscribed, Nothing Passes. I believe that nothing passes without leaving some trace, and that every little step has some meaning for the present and the future life. What I lived through was not in vain. My great misfortunes, my patience, moved the hearts of the people of the town, and they no longer call me little prophet. They no longer laugh at me and throw water over me as I walk through the market. They got used to my being a working man, and see nothing strange in my carrying paint-pots and glazing windows. On the contrary, they give me orders, and I am considered a good workman and the best contractor, after Radish, who, though he recovered and still paints the cupolas of the church without scaffolding, is not strong enough to manage the men, and I have taken his place and go about the town touting for orders and take on and sack the men, and lend money at exorbitant interest. And now that I am a contractor, I can understand how it is possible to spend several days hunting through the town for slaters to carry out a trifling order. People are polite to me, and address me respectfully, and give me tea in the houses where I work, and send the servants to ask me if I would like dinner children and girls often come and watch me with curious sad eyes once i was working in the governor's garden painting the summer-house marble the governor came into the summer-house and having nothing better to do began to talk to me and i reminded him how he had once sent for me to caution me for a moment he stared at my face opened his mouth like a round o waved his hands and said i don't remember I am growing old, taciturn, crotchety, strict. I seldom laugh, and people say I am growing like Radish, and like him I bore the men with my aimless moralizing. Maria Viktorovna, my late wife, lives abroad, and her father is making a railway somewhere in the eastern provinces and buying land there. Dr. Blagovo is also abroad. Dubechnia has passed to Mrs. Cheprakov, who bought it from the engineer after haggling him into a twenty per cent reduction in the price. Moisey walks about in a bowler hat. He often drives into town in a trap and stops outside the bank. People say he has already bought an estate on a mortgage, and is always inquiring at the bank about Dubechnia, which he also intends to buy. Poor Ivan Cheprakov used to hang about the town, doing nothing and drinking. I tried to give him a job in our business, and for a time he worked with us, painting roofs and glazing, and he rather took to it, 
and like a regular house-painter he stole the oil and asked for tips and got drunk but it soon bored him he got tired of it and went back to dubechnia and some time later i was told by the peasants that he had been inciting them to kill moisey one night and rob mrs cheprakov my father has got very old and bent and just takes a little walk in the evening near his house when we had the cholera prokofie cured the shopkeepers with pepper brandy and tar and took money for it and as i read in the newspaper he was flogged for libeling the doctors as he sat in his shop his boy nikolka died of cholera karpovna is still alive and still loves and fears her prokofie whenever she sees me she sadly shakes her head and says with a sigh poor thing you are lost on weekdays i am busy from early morning till late at night and on sundays and holidays i take my little niece my sister expected a boy but a girl was born and go with her to the cemetery where i stand or sit and look at the grave of my dear one and tell the child that her mother is lying there sometimes i find anwito blogovo by the grave we greet each other and stand silently or we talk of cleopatra and the child and the sadness of this life then we leave the cemetery and walk in silence and she lags behind on purpose to avoid staying with me the little girl joyful happy with her eyes half closed against the brilliant sunlight laughs and holds out her little hands to her and we stop and together we fondle the darling child and when we reach the town anyuita blagovo blushing and agitated says good-bye and walks on alone serious and circumspect and to look at her none of the passers-by could imagine that she had just been walking by my side and even fondling the child end of part twenty of my life the story of a provincial end of the house with the mezzanine and other stories by anton chekhov